Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We will be talking to one of the most influential people in healthcare in the United States, Dr. Robert Pearl. He is the former CEO of the nation's largest medical group, the Permanente Group, and was also the president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. In these roles, he led over 9,000 physicians and was responsible for the care of over 4 million Kaiser Permanente members. He serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is a regular Forbes contributor and the author of the best-selling book he is here to talk to us about today, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. This is a book that I consider to be a must-read, not just for people interested in healthcare, but for everyone who has ever been to a doctor or hospital or ever plans on going to one in the United States. Dr. Robert Pearl, welcome to the show. Good morning, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you've asked me to call you Robbie before, so I'm going to stick with that. Um, Robbie, I wonder if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you ended up where you are today. Went to medical school at Yale and then came to Stanford Medical Center for my training in plastic and reconstructive surgery. My specialty and area of expertise is around children with birth defects, particularly cleft lip and cleft palate. 
After residency, I joined Kaiser Permanente and over time took on increasing roles as a clinical physician leader, ultimately becoming the head of the medical center at Santa Clara. And then, as you said, the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, which is the physician half of Kaiser Permanente, as well as taking over the role on the East Coast in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. as the CEO for the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, also for the Kaiser Permanente members, 5 million people across the United States. As you pointed out, I also have been involved very much at Stanford University ever since my residency, uh, both in the medical school as well as in the business school. And I write my biweekly column for Forbes on the nexus, the intersection of medicine and business. And my book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, was a bestseller for the Washington Post as well as all profits from the book, Going to Doctors Without Borders, a wonderful charity that everyone should be interested in. That's fantastic that you do that. Uh, before we dig into the concept of the book, uh, can you please share with us your very personal experience that you had uh, with your father that you mentioned was a big part of the inspiration of the book? My father, Jack Pearl, was an amazing man. The son of two immigrant parents, he worked his way through dental school, uh, first college and dental school. World War II broke out. He could have stayed safely behind American lines and said he volunteered for the 101st Airborne. Parachuted on D-Day, captured by the Germans, led a daring escape for himself and his entire troop. Two nights through the darkened forest, brought everyone back safely. Very much what Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation. He was a tireless man, never slept, maybe four hours a night could work all day long, and then one day he found himself tired, an experience that he'd never had before. Went to the physician. My brother, who's the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, and I had handpicked his doctors, and they were excellent, and they made the right diagnosis. He had a what's called a hemolytic anemia. For the drugs he was taking, his body was breaking down his red blood cells, and his doctors took out his spleen, an organ in the upper left side of the abdomen. It's a filter. It filters out red blood cells, which is why it broke down the red blood cells, but it also filters out some bacterium, particularly the pneumococcus. Now, my brother and I had picked doctors for him both in New York and in Florida because he lived on the East Coast and spent half of the year at each location. And the doctors in both locations all knew that after your spleen is out, you need this vaccine. But mm -hmm. the ones in New York were sure the ones in Florida had given it to him. Florida thought New York. Primary care was sure he had specialty care. Specialty care thought it was New York. And in the end, he never received it. A few years later, he's out visiting my brother and me. He has dinner at my house. And he goes to my brother's house in Palo Alto for the night. My brother Ron wakes up in the morning for hospital rounds at 5 a.m. There's my dad on the floor, unresponsive. Races him to the, to the ICU at Stanford, where he spends four days unresponsive, two more weeks in the hospital. He doesn't die during that admission, but he will die ultimately from complications that he experienced during his time in the hospital. Of course, the diagnosis, pneumococcal septicemia, right. one of 200,000 people that year and every year since to die from an avoidable medical error. Wow. Your book is called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. 
Robbie, I live in the USA, home of the best medical schools and health systems in the world. We, as Americans, spend more than any other country in the world on healthcare. In fact, we we lap the field because we're getting the best healthcare in the world, right? No. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund, as an example, just looked at the outcomes that we get, or as you say, spending more than anyone else. In fact, we spend 50% more than any other nation in the world. We spend more on health care than the entire country of India, where this 1.2 billion people spends on everything wow. from transportation to clothes to food to housing to medical care. We spend more than the French spend on everything, including champagne and truffles. We spend more than every country in the world spends on everything except for China, Japan, and Germany. We spend a lot. And according to the Commonwealth Fund, we're last, number 11 out of 11 industrialized nations in healthcare outcomes. Life expectancy, last. Childhood mortality, last. In fact, there's not a single measure that we lead the world in. When you start looking under the covers, what you see is in addition to the 200,000 deaths that I mentioned in my mm -hmm. dad's case from medical error, there's another couple of hundred thousand unnecessary deaths from failures in prevention. And maybe another couple of hundred thousand deaths from complications of chronic diseases that could be avoided. In told, almost a half million people die every, every year unnecessarily in the United States. That's why I call the book Mistreated, because I think half a million deaths every year unnecessarily or prematurely is being mistreated. And yet... As you said, 76% of Americans believe it's the best in the world. And there's this incongruity between the perception of being the best and the objective data that says not only are we not the best, we may be the worst that led me to say why we think we're getting good health care, but why we're usually wrong. One of the things I loved about the book and, and one of the reasons I consider it to be a must read for everyone is the fact that it's so relatable. You know, just like the, the story of your father, uh, so many of the stories you tell in the book are ones that almost everyone has either experienced themselves or had a friend or family member or know someone who had a loved one who experienced something similar. I have a grandfather who died of medical error, had loved ones and know people with loved ones uh, who died of sepsis. I had an aunt who had extremely poor end-of-life care in her battle with cancer. The care she received was so poor and uncoordinated that my uncle, who was a knowledgeable healthcare professional, wrote a letter to the CEO of the health system in the hopes that it would prevent anyone else from having a similar experience. Uh, stories like this are, are all too common. Can you please uh, share a couple of the stories from your book of preventable, or preventable medical error and mistreatment that uh, would be relatable for our listeners? Sure. Let me first start by talking about this gap between perception and reality. And as you say, in the book, I talk about a lot of research, both very modern research, brain scanning studies, mm -hmm. as well as research left over from decades in the past, studies that could no longer pass a human experimentation committee. And the classic one is from the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right. Philip Zimbardo takes normal students. These are regular students, and half of them he randomly assigns to be jailers. They get aviator sunglasses. Half of them become jailees. They get OR greens with numbers. And he puts them together with the intent 
of being able to figure out a better way for the American penal system to work. Within 48 hours, the jailers see, and I want to make sure the listeners understand, they actually perceive these other students, but who now look like jailees, as being dangerous, as being hardened criminals. They make them do debasing tasks like clean toilet bowls with their bare hands. And the jailees see the jailers sadistic. Remember, everyone knows that the fellow participants in this study are simply students. And yet, what do we see? We see them behaving in these roles. Context shapes perception and changes behavior. Right. So let's look inside medicine. And I hope the listeners don't have a queasy stomach. <laughs> but 80 studies have shown, 80 studies have shown that one in three times when a physician goes from one hospital room to another, he or she fails to wash the hands. 80 studies. Now, understand that physicians have to take a test to get hospital privileges. They all have to pass a test on hospital-acquired infections. By the way, now the number three cause of death in the United States for hospitalized individuals. Every one of them knows that the most common bacterium, the one that's most dangerous, called C. diff, or Clostridium difficile, is carried on hands. It doesn't go through the air doesn't magically go from room to room. It's carried by a human being from one place to another. Everyone understands washing hands is the best way to prevent the infection to be carried. But in the context of being late for their office, in the context of being late for the OR, in the context of being late because they have to see an extra patient who got admitted across the night, what they suddenly perceive is themselves incapable of carrying that bacterium. And as a result, the behavior is they don't wash their hands and infection is carried from one patient to another. Another example came from the 1990s. Barry Marshall is a pathologist from Australia. In his particular hospital, Quite a number of people are having surgery for ulcer disease. At the time, 1995, the operation that's recommended is what's called a two-thirds gastrectomy. Two-thirds of the stomach is taken out with significant post-operative complications as a result. The reason they take out so much of the stomach is because they believe that the etiology is a combination of stress and spicy food both accounting for extra release of stomach acid. So if you take out two-thirds of the cells producing the acid, you would avoid the ulcer that otherwise happens. Now, Barry Marshall, as a pathologist, looks at the specimens. And what does he see? 90% of the time, the ulcers in the stomach or in the duodenum are surrounded by bacteria. We, today, we know it's, it's called H. pylori. At the time, no one even knows that it exists. He publishes this study. Now imagine, two-thirds of the time, I'm sorry, 90% of the time, he finds his bacteria. And what happens when he presents his findings? Nothing. Surgeons keep taking out two-thirds of the stomach. So now he does what I believe to be the most amazing research project in the history of medicine. First of all, he takes a scope, an endoscope, passes it through his own mouth, down to his own stomach, and takes pictures demonstrating he has no ulcer. He then walks over to the bacteriology laboratory, 
and finds a petri dish of bacterium and drinks it. <laughs> he scopes himself again and he finds he's produced an ulcer. Now he goes to the pharmacy and he gets medication, takes the medication and scopes himself for the third time and shows that he's cured it. In the late 19th century, a physician named Koch, K-O-C-H, came up with what's called four postulates that every physician understands is the gold standard for demonstrating an etiologic relationship in an infectious disease area, and he has fulfilled all four postulates. It wasn't there before, he produced it, and he cured it with a particular antibiotic intervention, and guess what happens? Nothing. It's only 15 years later when he wins the Nobel Prize for Medicine, almost never given to a physician, almost always a right. PhD researcher, that finally two-thirds of people start, two-thirds of surgeons start to recommend antibiotics rather than surgery. In the context of a fee-for-service world, when you're paid for doing procedures, you simply continue to do them even when the data says incontroversially that the right treatment would be antibiotics. Context shapes perception and changes behavior. It's true for physicians and it's just as true for patients. Why do we see our care as being the best in the world? Because of the context of American medicine, in the context of expensive American medicine, in the context of our fear that maybe we're not going to get the best care. We don't see that. What we see is being the best, and we behave accordingly. And as a result, we're mistreated. We think we're getting great health care, but we're usually wrong. Uh, you tell the story in your book about when you asked your uh, your business students if they received excellent health care and they all raised their hands. You know, it's funny. I, I, too, assumed that, you know, since I'm in America, my doctor's great. Uh, I like him a lot. You know, I have no bias for that or, or no reason for thinking that way, though, other than that, you know, he's a nice guy and my friend recommended him to me. You know, can you elaborate on that kind of concept as well as, you know, the story in your book you share of Bill Clinton? Sure. The way we see our physicians relative to quality is, as you point out, solely based upon service. And most physicians learn to have a good bedside manner, and we see them as being excellent. As you talk about in my business school class at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I ask these people, and remember, they've come out of a financial analytic world. They can analyze a stock down to the third decimal place. They think of themselves as being incredibly objective and analytic. And I say, how many of you get great health care and all the hands go up? Of course it would. I mean, these people have that expertise. And then as you point out, I say, how do you know? And all the hands drop. Because we have very little ability to discern that. Fortunately for us, most of the time, good things happen in medicine. 95% of the time, let's say an operation is going to be successful. So if you ask people you know, 19 out of 20 will tell you, doctor was great. Surgery turned out great. The problem is when you look at the last 5%, you'll have some physicians who are able to achieve great results with maybe a 1% complication rate, and others will have a 5%. That's a five-fold or a three, four, five-fold difference, but we can't perceive it. But even when people study it, 
What we see is that that context shapes perception, changes behavior more than the objective data. Bill Clinton finishes presidency, his wife, who ultimately ran for president, but in the interim became the senator from New York. She and President Clinton moved just outside New York City. He develops symptoms consistent with coronary artery disease. Now remember, Bill Clinton, a full decade before President Obama, started changing the American healthcare system. You may remember he came up with a healthcare reform plan, a very detailed, objective look at American medicine. He had access to all of the available data. The state of New York publishes to the third decimal place outcomes for cardiac evaluation and cardiac treatment. There are 35 hospitals with a high enough volume to be statistically significant. Of the 35 hospitals, when he goes for his evaluation, where does he go? The hospital with the second worst outcomes. They find that he has coronary artery disease, and where does he go for his surgery? To the hospital with the worst outcomes by the surgeon who has the highest complication rate, and guess what happens? He gets a complication. It's not that complex. But in the context of being afraid, having anxiety, he's going to perceive the places with the largest lobbies or the best marble or the biggest names as being the best, even though readily available on the internet, published by the state of New York, risk-adjusted to great detail is the facts. Had he picked a different hospital, he would have had a better outcome. Instead, he was mistreated. And if, he, if it happens to him, it happens to all of us. Unfortunately, as you point out, we either have no data on who is the best, or even when we have the information, we tend to follow our perception, not the objective information. Right. In the book, you state that many medical errors can be prevented with uh, integrated health records. Uh, can you please, ex or integrated electronic health records, excuse me, can you please explain that for our listeners? So I talk in the book about a roadmap to the future, ways that we can lower the cost of healthcare while dramatically raising the quality and actually also raising the convenience. The way to approach it is to think about four pillars, and they fit together. You can't separate them. One of the ones you speak about is the electronic health record. Another one is integration. Doctors working together as one. A third one is capitation, prepayment. And the mm -hmm. fourth is leadership. I talk in the book a lot about physician leadership. Not that leadership from nurses or hospital administrators is not important. It's very important. It's just that if we're going to fundamentally change American medicine, what we have to change is the way physicians behave. And doctors are not going to follow people who are not physicians, who are not colleagues, whom they don't work with and know very well. So let me start, if it's okay, back at the integration part, because the technology part stems out of the integration. Right. So from the standpoint of integration, it's physicians working within a specialty and between specialties that become essential. 
And this is where if context shapes perception and changes behavior for the worst, why not for the better? Because when you're on the same team, when you're integrated with these other physicians, now you see them as collaborators. You coordinate your care rather than seeing them as competitors, people who are there simply to take your patients away from you. When you do that within a specialty, what you start to see is that physicians change how they approach problems. They start to recognize that some people have more expertise in one area and other people have expertise in another. They start to be able to subspecialize so that patients get the best outcomes. They start to create centers of excellence where some physicians can do a particular operation and another place will do a different procedure. And when you start to coordinate between primary care and specialty care, now you come up with more efficient and better ways to do it. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we created a process whereby when a primary care physician was seeing a patient who needed a specialty referral, rather than just telling the patient, go home and call the specialist, they would actually connect with the specialist at that time. And 60% of the time, the problem could either get resolved before the patient left the primary care physician's office, or they would be able to do the, the order the testing necessary so when the patient arrives as a specialist, they were that much farther towards a definitive solution. That could just never happen in the fragmented world of American medicine today. When you start to be capitated, prepaid, now you start to worry about preventing disease as much as intervening. Mm -hmm. When you paid a few hundred dollars to prevent a heart attack, with tens of thousands to treat it, what ends up happening is you focus more on intervention and less on prevention. When you paid for, the, for taking care of a complication, it's not that you want that complication to happen. You just don't pay as much attention as in a prepaid system where the way you actually are most successful is preventing bad things from happening in the first place. The technology, though, becomes the part that brings everything together. It's impossible for me to imagine how you can provide great care if you don't have all the information. And yet that's the reality for most Americans. Very few Americans have access to a comprehensive electronic health record. Had my dad's physicians had the information, he wouldn't have died. He, wouldn't, he would have had the vaccine. They all knew it. They just all assumed that someone else had done it. And when you have all those parts together and you add on top of that a leadership structure, what do you see? In Kaiser Permanente, we lowered the chances of patients dying from a heart disease 30% below the community around us, according to the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Wow. Lower the chances of patients dying from sepsis 40% lower. Sepsis is a great story. What happens in sepsis is that some patients who come to the hospital are clearly infected throughout their body. That's what sepsis means. It means the infection is now spread, let's say, from a small area across, through the bloodstream everywhere. And some of those people who are very sick have a very abnormal, what's called blood lactate level. And every physician in the United States would perceive 
the patient to be very sick and intervene. But half of the time when patients arrive in the emergency department with sepsis, they're not that sick. Very often, actually, these are young, relatively healthy people whose body has enough reserve that they can continue to maintain a reasonably normal level of homeostasis, blood pressure, pulse. It's not that they're not sick. They're just not critically sick. They don't have what's called septic shock. In these patients, instead of that blood lactate being very elevated above four, it's more towards normal, somewhere in what's called the intermediate range between two and four. Now, the treatment for sepsis is very aggressive, as you might imagine. This is a life-threatening condition. Mm -hmm. You actually have to put a very large catheter down a uh, major vein in the neck. You have to pour in lots of fluids. You have to give very dangerous antibiotics. There's a lot of treatment that needs to happen for patients who are in sepsis. And this is where context shapes perception and changes behavior. Physicians are concerned because some of these things, particularly the placement of the line and particularly the administration of the high volume fluids can hurt a patient. And doctors are trained first do no harm and therefore they're very afraid of an intervention that might harm a patient unnecessarily. Now, when you look at the data, what you see is that if you intervene, far more lives are going to be saved than patients who can get harmed. That's what the data says. Treat aggressively all these people in this intermediate area. And what's going to happen is you'll save far more lives. The problem is that to the physician, a life saved is not the same as a complication caused. And so what you saw, this was maybe back a decade ago, is that patients would come in this intermediate area and physicians, rather than treating aggressively, would admit them to the hospital, order some small amounts of fluids, peripheral IVs through the arms, not the central lines. And then the next day or the day after, the patient would, of course, deteriorate because the infection would go, uh, would go much more rapidly and ultimately a high chance of the patient dying. A colleague of mine, Diane Craig, looked at the data. And what she then did is embed into the electronic health record the mandate and requirements to obtain this blood lactate level. Because what physicians would do is they simply would not order the test, knowing that if it was abnormal, they might have to treat. And instead, as I said, they would admit the patient to the hospital. Now the computer helped make sure that every patient at risk because they had an elevated fever and a rapid pulse and maybe even a small amount of blood pressure decrease, got this test, and that once it came back positive, they made, the computer helped the physician make sure that the intervention was done. The consequences, tens of thousands of lives saved. If this was done across the entire country, we would see 100,000 lives saved every single year. That's one of the ways. Another way it happens is through the computer system reminding physicians about gaps in prevention. If you look across the country, colon cancer, half of the time, 100,000 people a year who develop advanced colon cancer and die from it could have had their lives saved had physicians done a test. And I don't mean colonoscopy. 
I'm talking about a fit test. This is a small stool sample you do in the privacy of your bathroom once a year, totally safe, no bowel prep needed. Across the United States, it's only done about 60% of the time in the most sophisticated, integrated systems, over 90%. Or one last example, hypertension is the number one cause of ischemic stroke. 40% of strokes could be avoided with proper blood pressure control for people of elevated blood pressure. Across the United States today, 55% in the best of the integrated medical groups, over 90%. That's a lot of people who are going to develop a stroke and die unnecessarily. That's why I call it mistreated. Right. That could be resolved with advanced electronic healthcare systems, electronic healthcare records done in the context of integration. So the physicians work together, share the information, and it's available at every point of contact. And in a capitated prepaid system where the incentive is there to prevent disease in the first place, not simply intervene when the complications develop. So when I travel, I, I, I can get an Uber with my phone. I can order pizza with an app. I can check my bank account with an app. I can even tell my Xbox to download a movie on my phone when I'm not on home and it's ready for me when I get there. Why do people tolerate not having the same conveniences from their healthcare providers? You're absolutely right, Jeremy. We tolerate so much less in our healthcare than we tolerate in any other aspect of our life, from our finances to our banking to our travel to retail. And this comes back to this same theme of context, shaping perception, changing behavior. What we don't realize is how much our brains fear disease, how much comes out of really a history of 5,000 years, or actually go all the way back 30, 20,000, 30,000 years. Disease has always been a mystery, death, something we tremendously fear, right. and medicine embodies all of that. And so we develop cultural norms. We accept going to a physician's office and waiting. We accept simply having to have the diagnosis delayed because we have to go to the doctor's office rather than having it managed through a video visit or managed through a digital picture if it's a dermatologic type rash. We tolerate these things because in the context of our fear, I'll say in quotes, we don't want to upset the healthcare gods. <laughs> and so we simply tolerate this unnecessarily. We could provide care anywhere around the globe around video. Skype, people use it all the time. You go to your ATM, you expect it's going to have all of the information for your financial records. You, tr you go online and you move money between financial institutions with a confidence around the privacy and the safety. And yet in medicine, often we have to go to a bank between, uh, sorry, we have to go to a physician's office Monday to Friday between nine and five to get the information, to get the intervention done. We simply tolerate it because in the context of our fear, in the context of our worry, we change perception 
We see it as being the best in the world. And our behaviors are that we therefore are willing to put up with it rather than demanding change. My hope is that at some point, the large purchasers in the world, the large businesses are going to say to the American healthcare system, if you can't change five years from today and make certain that for the employees that we cover, all of the care is integrated, you've made certain the physicians are going to work together as one, both within specialties and across specialties. If you can't find a way to pay for the care in a prepaid type fashion so that the value and the focus is as much on prevention and avoiding medical error as intervention. If you can't make sure that for every one of our people, all of their information is going to be immediately available to any physician they see, any hospital they go to, then we're not going to let you take care of our patients. And I'm confident, Jeremy, that within five years, the American healthcare system can improve and meet all of his expectations. And when that happens, what we're going to see is that number one, physicians will, uh, patients will not be mistreated. And number two, they will now be forced to embrace modern technology, forced to use video, forced to make certain that the comprehensive electronic health record is available, forced to make sure that the conveniences we demand in the rest of our life are there in the healthcare we receive. So in, in the book, you give some great examples of, of telehealth or video being used. Would you mind sharing one of those? And also, you know, why hasn't it been ad ad adopted more by now? And what are maybe some of the concerns that some of the doctors have around telehealth? So I think of telehealth in a couple of ways. One way is between doctor and patient. So that today... Physicians usually will insist that you come to the office. My dad, once he left the hospital, still had major problems with his feet. He had developed ulcers in the hospital and needed treatment. My sister, who was the CEO of an organization in New York, had to miss a half day of work every week to go to his apartment, pick him up, take him to the physician so the doctor could check the wound. You know, when I'm a physician, I'm a surgeon. When we operate on people's feet, what do we tell them? Keep your foot elevated above your heart. I don't know, Jeremy, if you ever tried to drive a car with your foot elevated above your heart or go up a set of stairs. Very difficult to accomplish. And that's what we tell our patients probably 70, 80, 90% of the time. The physician could have evaluated my father's feet using a video or even a digital picture. Why not? Because the doctor doesn't get paid. Physicians only get paid for, at the time and for the most part still now when they physically see the patient. Another great example, in Northern California today, in Kaiser Permanente, there's one neuro-trained, neurologist, stroke-trained, who uses video to look at all 20 emergency rooms across Northern California. As soon as a patient walks through the door who may be having a stroke, that physician takes over the care. Now, what happens in most emergency departments? Patient walks through the door, a nurse spends some time, the ED doctor does some evaluation, a neurologist is consulted. It can be a full hour between the patient arriving 
and a decision made about definitive treatment. You see, in a lot of strokes, you get a blockage of the blood vessel, and there's a very powerful drug that, blo- that busts the clot. The faster you give the drug, the more quickly the blood flow is restored to the brain, the higher the chance the patient's going to live, the better the intellectual function. What's the problem? If you give it to the wrong patient, it actually could harm the individual. Video allows one highly specialized stroke-trained neurologist to look at all 20 emergency departments. And as soon as someone walks through the door who might be having a stroke, to take over the care. And what's the difference? Rather than an hour or an hour and a half delay, care is now provided in under 30 minutes. Or another great example is the Mid-Atlantic. There's an emergency physician in the telephone center. Now, if you're having chest pain, you call 911. But let's say it's two o'clock in the morning, you your daughter, who's two years old, has a high fever, and you're concerned. Could be serious. It might not be serious. You know if you go to the emergency department, you're likely to wait a long time. You have work the next morning. Maybe you should go to the people. What are you going to do? You're not a physician. You connect with the telephone center. One click of the button on your phone, one click on the other side. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a video visit. of the time, the physician there can resolve the issue. 30% of the time, the physician is going to say, you have to go into the emergency department. Sometimes it's because you're having a problem. Sometimes it's because you might be having a problem. But 70% of the people can have the problem resolved. Physician's looking at your daughter, and she's lying there, not moving, with a stiff neck. He or she's worried about your daughter having meningitis. Get over here right now. They look at your, your kid, and they're running around, maybe riding their bicycle, Says your kid's going to be okay. Call me, call me tomorrow or call back to your pediatrician tomorrow morning for the care. None of that could happen without video. I believe that 30% of what we do in physician's offices today could be done with video. I'll give you another great example. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was coming down some steps on a rainy day, and a man behind me slipped and fell. It's like Superman flying at me. I grabbed the rail. I turned. He slammed into me. He broke my leg in eight different places. I went to the Kaiser Permanente facility where I normally would get my care, saw the orthopedic surgeon, diagnosed the complication of the fracture. He said to me, first of all, something fascinating. He said, I'll do your surgery. And I knew him very well. He was a superb surgeon. He said, but there's a physician at the next Kaiser Permanente down the highway who's even better than I am at this particular operation. I said, great. That sounds wonderful. When should I see this person? He said, oh, you don't have to need to see the person at all. And he arranged a video visit for me. I saw the physician on video. He had access to my electronic health record. He scheduled my surgery for the next day. First time I met him in person was in the preoperative area, but I already had a confidence in that care that was provided. I knew that he knew me. I knew that he had the information. He certainly had the x-rays, and fortunately, the surgery turned out great, and the recovery was perfect. It might have turned out just as well with the first surgeon, 
but that opportunity to make that care, to avoid having to take that ambulance, to avoid the delay in care, that is what can happen. The traditional American healthcare system is simply a 19th century cottage industry with fragmentation, with payment by piecemeal fee-for-service, with technology that's 30 to 50 years old, and as a result, the American populace is mistreated. So, so I work in healthcare, and everything I read everywhere, essentially, uh, talks about how broken the current reimbursement model for healthcare is. Can you explain what fee-for-service is and, and use the example in the book of how you relate it to a kitchen remodeling contractor? The problem with a fee-for-service world is that you're paid to do more, not better. The more you do, the more you get paid. Now, ask a physician, they will all tell you that simply because they're paid on a fee-for-service basis, they don't do anything differently. But you look at the behavior, and it is true. The more spine surgeons in a community, the more spine surgery is done, despite the fact that there's no more spine disease. The most commonly done operation in orthopedics is one where a patient has knee pain. The physician comes and puts a arthroscope into the joint and trims up some of the meniscus and cuts out a couple of little fragments. A, two studies actually, both remarkably well controlled, interestingly enough out of Canada, showed that the operation plus physical therapy is no better than physical therapy alone one year after it is performed. Wow. And yet it's the most commonly done operation in the United States. I make the analogy in the book Mistreated to having your kitchen remodeled. If in one way you sign a contract for a particular set of services, and the other way you simply hire a contractor to say, I'll pay you time and materials and a percent of the total expense, I guarantee you, you're going to get a lot more Things done, a lot more expensive cabinets, a lot more dollars spent in that arena than you actually need or actually want. The solution, and it's talked about a lot in American medicine today, is called pay for value. Why should I pay for things that not only don't make me better, but actually might sometimes make me worse? Why not pay on outcomes? Why not pay as much to prevent the heart attack in the first place than to do the intervention to take out the clot or put in the stent that could have been avoided with the proper preventive care? The challenge is that it would diminish the cost of health care. It would diminish the income for many of the people in health care. It would diminish the income, particularly in many of the specialty areas. And that's why moving from where we are today to what everyone acknowledges is a better place is difficult to accomplish. Let me give you one other example. Probably half of the hospitalizations in the United States today, half of the total days could be avoided through better prevention, avoidance of complications, and more efficient hospital operations. 
But just try to imagine if all of a sudden half of the people in American hospitals today were no longer there. The hospitals would go out of business. Getting from where we are today in a fee-for-service world, in a world that the more you do, the more you get paid, and as a consequence of that, you see higher and higher utilization, higher and higher costs, to one that is very efficient and effective, that actually increases the health of the American populace. If it's going to close hospitals, if it's going to eliminate the need for many physicians, if it's going to eliminate the need for a lot of nurses, it's not going to be embraced by what I call in the book the legacy players, mm -hmm. by the hospitals of this nation, by the specialty societies of this nation. And that's where we are right now. It's almost as though we're standing at a at the Grand Canyon, on one side of the Grand Canyon, looking to the other side, knowing we need to be on that other side, but getting there, you gotta go all the way down and all the way back up. And it's just easier not to do it. And in that context, perception changes, and we tell ourselves this is the best healthcare system, and we tell ourselves that all these operations are necessary and good, and the data says that it's not true. A girl born in Seoul, Korea today has a life expectancy of 90. That same girl in the United States, 83. Wow. What we provide in the United States is the 37th best country in the entire world, despite the fact that we spend 50% more than any other nation on the globe. So healthcare is expensive and it's getting more expensive. What would you say to someone who has, you know, health insurance through their job, has a fairly high deductible, but is scared to use their, you know, their health insurance or go to the doctor because they can't actually afford to use what they're paying for? Is there any hope for these, you know, lower middle class individuals and families? What you're describing is a growing phenomenon and tremendous threat. What you're describing is that even if people have insurance, the most, the most rapidly growing type coverage is a high deductible program where they have to pay out of pocket $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 before their insurance kicks in. High deductible plans are already past 30% and approaching 40% of what is offered in the United States today. And that is simply, as you point out, for many families, unaffordable. And that's a major reason why I wrote this book. Because if we can't change the structure and the reimbursement and the technology of American healthcare, we're just gonna see more and more of the costs being put onto employees, putting onto families, putting on to people in this country who will not be able to afford it, and they're going to avoid it. And the consequences are we will have an increasing number of strokes and heart attacks and cancer that spread across the body that could have been prevented. We have a very short-term mentality with the long-term consequences being quite dire. The answer is every American needs to have the preventive services that are required. They need to have the right medications and aggressive treatment for chronic disease to avoid the complications. They need to be in a place 
where the likelihood is going to be that the medical errors will be avoided or at least dramatically reduced. And unfortunately, in the American healthcare system today, the patient is often the victim. The patient is often powerless. And as you point out, increasingly, the patients are able to afford the care. In a business school, we call this a vicious cycle. What happens is you start cutting back on the coverage that's provided. People stop getting the care that's required. They therefore become sicker. The costs go up and it accelerates and accelerates and more and more people can't afford or receive the medical treatment that's necessary. It's why I believe that it's so important to make the changes now before it gets worse. Mm -hmm. And my concern is I think that if anything today, the American healthcare system is going in the opposite direction simply because it feels overwhelmed by the challenges and overwhelmed by the ever-growing costs. We're now approaching 20% of everything we spend in this country going to healthcare wow. with outcomes that are 37th best in the world. If you could design a healthcare delivery system from the ground up, ignoring any sort of insurance or legislation or anything like that, or you know the way things are now, uh, what what would that look like to you? So, if I were going to design a system from the beginning, the first thing about it is that it would be integrated, both at the physician level and at the inpatient and outpatient level. It would have the right number of physicians based upon the population being served. Compared to today, it would have more primary care and fewer specialists. The specialists who were there would be as productive, but because they were co coordinated and working together as one, working with nurses and other healthcare professionals, they'd be able to provide as much or more services where it was evidence-based and where it was likely to improve quality rather than simply raise costs. Hospitals would be right-sized, not a hospital in every town, but centers of excellence that would achieve superior outcomes with enough hospitals around it to provide the community-type hospital care that was necessary and below that, actually, what I call hubs, urgent care centers, but staffed with emergency physicians with advanced technology. The organization in that way, that integrated organization, supported with advanced technology would allow higher quality at lower cost. The care itself would be prepaid in a capitated kind of way. The physicians and the hospitals would get reimbursed for outcomes for better, for lower chances of patients dying from heart disease, from improved cancer outcomes, from earlier diagnosis of systemic infection, not simply for higher volumes. And the technology would be extensive. It's a, a, a complete electronic health record so that every patient's information would be readily available to every physician in every hospital, connecting the pieces together. It would offer video as alternatives. And if a problem developed, they'd find the physician, the expert with the greatest knowledge for that particular problem and connect the patient in a very convenient way. And if surgery is necessary, we'd all travel if we think the outcomes are gonna be better. We just don't wanna have to travel four or five times for consultation and testing. All of that would be eliminated. Right. 
digital photography would allow diagnoses of, infe- of rashes 70% of the time without us having to either wait or come back in. And I'd make certain that clinicians were very much involved in the leadership roles, coordinating all the pieces on behalf of patients. Those four parts together, I believe, could raise the quality of the United States dramatically while lowering the cost. With, with the way things are now, do you think it's, it's realistically possible to get there? And, and, you know, what are some of the roadblocks to get there? And what do you think is the game plan to get there? I do not believe that the American healthcare system on its own is capable of getting there. I think someone else is going to have to do it as, a, uh, as part of the process. I was very interested in the recent merger of Amazon with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Chase Morgan, Morgan Chase, that these external people, these large employers, people who have tremendous expertise, are now starting to come into the healthcare sphere and looking at alternative ways to do it. The CEOs, the three CEOs, are respected tremendously in their in their own fields right now. There's no reason why. They could not be as respected as much in medicine. And they are not going to tolerate the fragmentation of today. They're not going to tolerate the fee-for-service type approach to reimbursement that drives volume and not outcomes. They're not going to tolerate uh, a, a lack of integration. They're not going to tolerate the pieces that exist. And I think conceivably they could reshape the dynamics of American medicine, as I say, increasing primary care, finding ways to make specialists more efficient, right-sizing the number of people, and then looking at the opportunities to have a fewer number of higher quality outcome hospitals that could become centers of excellence across this country. But if they don't do that, it's also possible to me that the change will come offshore. Now, we may be entering into a recession, Today, there's a lot of talk, as you know, about the tariffs mm-hmm. uh, happening across the globe, possible tariff wars. And at some point, if there's a recession, businesses that today in the context of very low unemployment have trouble recruiting workers could find themselves now simply not being able to bear the cost of medical practice. There's a physician I know named Debbie Shetty. Debbie Shetty is a cardiac surgeon trained in the United States. He runs 11 heart hospitals in India. Ask Devi, what do you do? Now remember, he's a heart surgeon. He says, I set a price on human life. I say, if I said, Devi, what do you mean you set a price on human life? You're a surgeon. He said, oh, no, no, I I arrive at the hospital in the morning, and in India, only 10% of people have healthcare coverage. There's a line of 30 moms with 30 babies. They've all been well worked up. They all need heart surgery. I greet them, I talk about the medical problem, and then I explain that they're going to have to pay for the surgery. He said, I, I, I do a lot of free surgery. I just can't do all 30 of the women in line and their children. The ones who can borrow the money, and by the way, in India today, it's about $1,800 a case he charges. The United States is seventy-five dollars to $100,000. Wow. If they can borrow the money, the child gets admitted to the hospital and lives – if they can't, they take the child home to die. I visited him a little over a year ago. The day I was there, 
his teams, he has multiple teams, did 37 heart surgeries that day, including a heart transplant. That's more than any academic program in the United States does in a month. And you can bet that the outcomes are world-class and at a relatively low cost. In this case, a very low cost, $1,800. Right. Now, I tell the story. I don't expect Americans are going to go to India for their surgery. But Debbie's building a hospital in the Grand Cayman Islands, one hour from Miami. A beautiful place, white sand beaches, a tourist culture, totally safe. And the hospital he's building on an island of 50,000 people has 2,000 hospital beds. Probably 20 of them are for the people from the Grand Caymans. The rest are for American tourists. And we could see disruption, disruption happening in the United States as people leave here. In fact, we're already seeing it in Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, California, today, there's only one hospital or one major hospital in the town. And you can imagine what they charge for their procedures is off the charts high. And so this, the county and the city are, is offering money to employees who are willing to go to San Diego to a top-notch hospital there to receive their care. We could see... If the U.S. economy were to go into a recession, a tremendous change whereby all of a sudden what's happening in the United States today is being done by someone else, someone else in the, in the world with excellent results. I don't see the American healthcare system changing because it's so difficult. Try to imagine hospitals closing. Between San Jose and San Francisco, where I live in Silicon Valley, there are 10 hospitals doing heart surgery. Three of them do fewer than 300 cases a year. That means at least 65 days a year, they have an OR team available and no patient. How can you have high quality when you're doing basically one procedure a day and some days none? You certainly can't have cost-efficient care. Take the three hospital CEOs, Put them in my business school class. Every one of them will say the same solution. Put the three hospitals together. Now the volume is reasonable. Now the cost dropped dramatically. But in the context of being the CEO of a hospital, one who makes a lot of money, even on one surgery a day, because they can charge enough for it. In the context of being the CEO of a hospital and having your brand be associated with a cardiac surgical program, Perception changes. They all of a sudden see that this is a good way to get care, that their hospital is excellent, despite what's being published by the state of California on outcomes. And their behavior is they keep low-performing, high-cost programs in place. I don't see them changing. I don't see the national societies changing I don't see the American healthcare system changing voluntarily. Unfortunately, I don't see the Congress of the United States being able to overcome some of the economic dollars that are contributed for campaigns and for lobbying. And we haven't even yet got to the issue of the pharmaceutical world, right. where Americans pay so much more for medications particularly for medications now that have been around for a long time. These are not breakthrough medications because the drug companies in the United States are capable of simply raising prices without making the necessary investments in R&D.
day, the American healthcare system is broken. And as a result of that, patients are mistreated. Well, the, Robbie, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, my final question for you is, is, what are you working on now? So before I do that, let me, for the listeners, uh, finish my dad's story, and then I'll talk about what I'm working on now. So I told you that my dad, when he was in the hospital, developed complications, and he ultimately needed a procedure done. And he was on blood thinners because he had what's called atrial fibrillation that was not related to his problem. But he had to have the, th the blood thinners stop because of the complications from his first hospitalization to have the procedure done, and he ended up developing a stroke. My brother and I were in California. We got the phone call at night, took a red eye to Florida. We was being hospitalized at that time. We arrive in his hospital room, and there he is strapped to the bed, intubated, a tube down his mouth into his lung, another tube through his nose into his stomach. There he is, essentially unresponsive once again. There's a line of doctors out the door. The otolaryngologist wants to do the tracheostomy. The gastroenterologist wants to put in the feeding tube. The neurosurgeon wants to take out a piece of his skull to allow his brain to expand. My brother and I look at the x-rays. My dad's not going to get better. He would never want to live like this. We thank his physicians, but we say, no, thank you. We don't want anything else done. Two and a half more days, my dad is in the hospital. And we never see another physician. In a fee-for-service world, in the American healthcare system, you can't get paid for compassion. There is no billing code that allows you to get reimbursed for being with a family at its time of greatest needs. Not only is the American healthcare system mistreating patients, also mistreating physicians. What you see is that a third of American physicians report being depressed. 400 suicides a year, more than half of doctors are discouraging their children from becoming physicians. Mistreated is both for the receivers of care and the providers of care. Today, what I'm working on, I'm working on my next book, my next book right now is tentatively titled Defining Decisions, Death, Life, and Sexuality. It's a series of interviews that I did, people I met as a physician. Some were patients, many were colleagues, some were other individuals I met across my travels. In the death section, it looks at one patient, a colleague. In fact, a surgeon who operated on me who did physician-assisted suicide. Another story is a young girl who at the age of 17 was diagnosed with a low blood count and was found to have a cancer of her colon and a separate cancer in her brain and is struggling to figure out how much of life she's willing to sacrifice simply to survive. And the story of a dad whose child had a bleed into the brain from prematurity, and rather than having surgery done, allowed the child to die to avoid all the pain and suffering that otherwise would ensue. Chapter on sexuality is about a colleague of mine 
a colleague who was born a male, anatomically speaking, but who felt that he was actually a woman and underwent the transformation surgery necessary to move into a female habitus and his wife, who had married him when he was a man and stayed with him as a woman. And finally, the story of a nurse who had an upbringing that impacted her ability to accept her attraction to people of the same sex, who fought it, who married, who had children, and then ultimately realized that she couldn't live without acknowledging her true sexuality. And in the middle section on life, a remarkable set of individuals, a medical student I know, donated a kidney to a total stranger. Wow. A physician who went to medical school blind. Imagine doing surgery, not doing the surgery, but participating in the rotation when you can't see. Two colleagues of mine who've traveled the globe providing care to those who otherwise couldn't get it. One who went to Liberia and, treat, and volunteered to take care of patients with Ebola. Another one who went to Haiti after the earthquake and to Syria. A whole set of individuals, remarkable stories, and in the end, trying to answer the question, when all of us face defining decisions in our life, when we find ourselves in a situation where we have to address two alternatives, but there's no objective way to compare them, there's no economic basis to decide one is better than another, when we actually don't know anyone or very few people exist even in the world, who have faced the same circumstances, how do we make these decisions? Because I do believe that part of our human existence is grappling with these issues, grappling with the question of our mortality, grappling with the question of our sexuality, and grappling with the question, how do we go beyond simply surviving to make the world a different and better place? And I'm hoping in that process, That'll be, allow the reader to gain insight into their lives and to do better when they too face these defined decisions that we all experience as part of our existence. I can't wait to finish it. Unfortunately, uh, it'll probably be two years before it's available for purchase. Uh, but in the interim, I encourage the readers to look at Mistreated and remember that all the proceeds are going to go to Doctors Without Borders, a global charity providing relief to those in need around the world. I, I would also encourage them to check out your, your contributions to, the, to Forbes as well. Um, and I will say about your book, I can't wait to read it when it's finished. It sounds fascinating, and I, I hope you come back on the show to talk about that book as well. I would love to, Jeremy, and I really appreciate the chance uh, to talk about Mistreated today. And I encourage any listeners who, are, who read the book, if they have feedback, I'd like to learn from their perspectives and to please uh, contact me. My website is Robert Pearl MD, www.robertpearlmd, and I'd love to uh, connect with them either through the website or through LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you very, very much for your time today. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been fun.